Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler. On this episode of Floods of Justice, we will be talking about the death penalty with special guest Kelly Henry. Don't go anywhere. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24 where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev, he is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the coffee house at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Hello, Pastor Kevin. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. It's a beautiful day. It is. It's crazy. <laughs> Flash flood warnings and 39 degrees four or I five know. days ago, and now it's 80. Something. 80, and it's going to be in the Sun 30s. On my back here. It's going to be in the 30s by the end of the week. So yeah. we're in that time of year. Mm-hmm. Up and down, up and down. <laughs> but that's kind of 2020, isn't it? It's There's some roller coaster, political, emotional, chaotic something or other going on. Yeah, I saw a cartoon the other day that said, um, let's see if I can get this right. This just came to me. But it said, um, apparently, um, the uh, song Baby Sharks. <laughs> yes, I've seen this. <laughs> was some type of uh, ancient formula that opened up the gates of hell. <laughs> yeah, Pandora's box. Thanks, dude, 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 dude. So that's why we're going through everything that we're going through. Oh, that's why. Okay. That's it. <laughs> shut, that, shut that portal. Yeah, you heard it here, folks. Well, we are excited on this episode. Uh, You know, Kevin, you were just mentioning, we've actually done several episodes on the topic of the death penalty. Um, But I think this is the first time that we've had a special guest to be on the show, a expert in this this field. So, Yeah, I'm excited about uh, today and uh, and about our guest. I think this is about number five that we've done on the death uh, penalty since uh, February. But I have with us an expert on... uh, the law, anyway, when it yeah. comes to the death penalty. Kelly Henry, she's the supervisory assistant federal public defender, and her um, her office or organization or the public defender's office where she works um, represents, what would you say, 29 of the 50 guys uh, of, on, who are on death row. Kelly and I met uh, back last February. We went up to Cincinnati um, to whatever court that was. I don't remember uh, for Pastor KB, uh, he had a, a hearing or, or something there that we're still waiting on the ruling, hoping he'll get a resentencing uh, from that. And so I got to spend a little bit of time with, with her, got to see her in action. Yeah. And, um, and what was the other guy's name? Richard Tennant. Okay. You mentioned him before we went on there. Yeah. Richard Tennant got to see them in action and they're pros. And so there's uh, I, I wanted to talk to her today about the death penalty in general, but there's a case, the next person who's scheduled to be executed December the 3rd um, is Purvis Payne, uh, a friend of mine, um, and uh, he actually shared a brief testimony on our recorded church service a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And, um, but he's coming up next, but the Innocent Project has taken on his case because of some um, things that weren't done correctly um, at the original trial. And so we're hoping that not only will he get a stay, but that he'll 
get out of jail. He, he has maintained his innocence. He's been pretty consistent about that. Um, but anyway, so welcome, Kelly. Is that all right? Can I call you? Oh, absolutely. Or is there a district attorney or public defender? <laughs> Not district attorney. Uh, yeah, public defender Henry. or, or Ke- Kelly's, Kelly's good. Thank you for yeah. having me. Yeah, well, just share a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in this, and then we'll just transition on into... Um, um, you know, Purvis's case, and I think at least some of our listeners will be familiar with that. It's been in the press quite a bit um, here locally. So, but anyway, sure, welcome. I, well, thank you. And like I said, I'm, I'm really um, pleased to be here and appreciate the opportunity to talk about Purvis and his case. It's a, it's a special case. Um, I've been doing this work for 30 years, and I came to Tennessee in March of 2000. So this work being specifically... Opposing, de- handling death penalty cases? Exactly. Wow. I, I started in law school oh, wow. um, in 1989 working in Missouri, which is where I'm from originally, and um, represented my first guy facing an execution date at that point um, in May of, of 1989. Leonard Laws was executed in, in Missouri. But, um, and it just became my calling. I knew it, this is what I wanted to do. So I, I started out... Um, Knew I had to do some trials to know what it was like to be in front of a jury. Sure. Um, but I quickly moved up to doing death penalty cases and then straight into what we call habeas. So my office is the capital habeas unit. And it's, um, it's at the federal level. So um, by the time the guys get to my office, they've already been through a trial, a direct appeal, a state post-conviction, an appeal of that. Um, but the law says, the Constitution says, you know, the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, and that's the basis of, of what we do. So the federal courts then have an opportunity to look at what happened, you know, before them. And there are um, a number of units across the country now. There's about 22 of us. And we only represent people who are on death row who've reached that point. And my shortcut way of saying that is, for better or worse, we're their last lawyers. So we will see them through to, you know, getting out of prison, um, getting off death row, as we did with, you know, David Duncan recently mm-hmm. and others, um, clemency with Gail Owens, or if they're executed. And you know, we, we represented Don Johnson and Ed Zagorski most recently um, in their executions. My office represents everybody on the row in federal court once they um, get there from the middle district and the western district. And then there's another office that handles the, the Eastern District of, uh, of Tennessee. So everybody out of Memphis, which, you know, 24 of the 50 on death row are from Memphis. 18 of those 24, by the way, are black. Yeah. Um, you know, Memphis is a, uh, a heavy user of the death penalty in this state. Um, and we can, we can talk about that and how. Yeah, it's not like at one time I, the, some of the guys on the road were telling me that a lot of them were even sentenced um, under a particular person. You know, and that person is no longer um, there and uh, got in some trouble himself right. <laughs> over over some things. But, you know, I, I I just wrote this down. I want to talk about Purvis, but I'm afraid I'm going to forget this because you've been you have been doing death row cases for 30 years. Obviously, during that time, you have seen several people ex, um, executed. What do you do for your own soul care? <laughs> I mean, that's got to be right. I, I know how it affects me. And um, but. You know, you, you've, you've been at it a long time. Yeah. So what, what do you do to, to help yourself? You know, that's a great question because for a long time, um, I took the position that I would not witness an execution because I felt like if I witnessed, I couldn't go to work the next day, you know. Um, and I had kids and, you know, I just, I needed to 
keep a, a certain amount of, uh, of perspective, but also I was litigating usually, you know, I'm in the office, um, litigating. I'll, I'll never forget Philip Workman calling right before he was executed. And, you know, we had just lost and it was, you know, I don't know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes before he was going to be executed. Um, and that was hard. That was real hard. But I actually worked with a trauma expert mm. before I witnessed the Zagorski execution um, because I said, you know, I, I need to, you know, I need to take care of him. I need yeah. to do my job. My job in that moment is to make sure that everything's going the way it's supposed to go, right? Because if they're messing up, if the sponge isn't wet enough or if they're not using the right sponge or anything that they're messing up, I need to be able to get on the phone to the court and stop it. So I've got to be able to be composed mm -hmm. um, and yet still have compassion. So we worked on it and we talked about, you know, I, I said, you know, I need to detach. And she said, no. That's exactly the wrong approach. You don't detach because you need to experience this and feel that there's meaning and purpose in your being there. And, and for Ed, um, what that was, was, you know, I just said, you know, I'm going to put my hand over my heart and that means that I'm holding you in my heart. And, you know, so you just lock eyes with me because I was the only one mm -hmm. there because they don't, you know, he didn't have family and you can only have one lawyer in the room. Um, so I just said, you know, just... Look at me and I'm holding you in my heart. And, you know, having a purpose, I can't, at that point we couldn't stop what I considered a murder right. from happening. But if I can bring comfort, like that is helpful. Yeah. And if I can bear witness and if I can go out and I can talk to the press afterwards and say, this is what happened and it happened in your name and you need to know it yeah. because you can stop it. Yeah. Because, you know, they're doing it for the citizens. Yeah, that's a whole other thing because I have seen you on television, so you have to leave immediately from witnessing what you witnessed and then go out as the, as the um, person's representative and address, and address the press. But anyway, I didn't mean to go that deep that quick. <laughs> no, that, I'm but I was just like, I was like, whoa, 30 years, that's a lot. I mean, as a pastor, you know, I've been in the room um, and when people have died or been the first one at the house when somebody has died and of, of all ages. And so I know after a while that that takes a toll on you. And it's kind of, I think what your therapist was saying is, yeah, you, you have to, you have to allow yourself to feel it and to go through the emotions. You, you have to, that's how you stay human. You can't become cynical, you know, kind of, kind of uh, uh, from that. But as you were saying 30 years, I was like, man, that's a long time to, to be in this fight that oftentimes doesn't go the way um, that uh, that we want it to go <laughs> at the end, and you become close to the, what I've been telling people about the debt, like the federal the federal executions that are going on. There's like I don't know the exact number, so I'll summarize. But I think there's like fifty some odd people at the federal on federal death row. Fifty three. Okay, so fifty three people. There's already been what eight or nine. Uh, there've been seven executions. This okay, year. and there's yeah. at least one more scheduled, right? So now these these guys are you know death row it's a, it's a long time from sentencing to actual carry you know carry it out and you're isolated you're just in that unit and so you've got 20 years with these 50 guys yeah. and then all of a sudden one after another they start being executed your whole world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller you know and so there's a there's a there's a 
unusual um, pain. I, in, in our own local executions, it's been my habit I, that I would, use, I would usually go to death row on Friday. And so the, the execution would happen on Thursday. Don't know why, but they're always Thursday. <laughs> and would be out there Thursday for the um, protest, you know, and the prayer service for that, and then go out Friday uh, to see the guys. And um, that was always interesting, just that the day after. Now, for them, they kind of start grieving usually on Monday because sometime <clears throat> between Sunday night and Monday night, they come get the person, take them to death watch. And basically when they, <clears throat> excuse me, when they leave, you don't see them again. So they just kind of start the grieving process then. And most of the guys won't even watch television on Thursdays. Yeah. And especially the news, they don't. And usually when I get there on Friday, they'll ask, well, what was his last words? And I'll, I'll tell them because they intentionally, they, don't, they just don't want to put themselves through that. But, they, but every time somebody's executed, then your, your circle gets smaller and smaller. And then, yeah. of course, natural deaths. I think since I've been going out to death, to death row counting natural deaths and execution, it's somewhere between 12 to 15 guys yeah. Yeah. that have a die. And that's only in maybe five years. You know, so there's a lot. It's wow. But anyway. Well, it seems like the majority of, of Americans stay somewhat detached. Like they may have opinions about the death penalty, but you made a comment that you said that you're able to go out to the press and say they did, did this for you. They did this for the citizens. What do you mean by that? And executions are on behalf of the citizens of the state of Tennessee. So if the citizens of the state of Tennessee realize what's happening in their name, yeah. I believe they're going to say stop this. Yeah. You know, I'm mean, deliberately asking yeah. that because I think it's... Yeah. And the death certificate says homicide, yeah. cause yeah. of death, homicide. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have become an adoptive daughter of the South, right? Yeah. And I love this state. And I feel that most of the people in this state, no matter what your political beliefs are, you know, 99.9% .9 of things we can agree on. And when people know what's actually happening... I think they'll say, no, I don't do this. There, yeah. there are other ways. There are better ways to spend our money. I mean, frankly, the death penalty is a failed government program, yeah. right? But you, you um, asked me something about, you know, how I got through it, and, and I would be remiss to also say that, um, you know, Jesus and I have been on a journey together, <laughs> and sometimes I'm really mad at him. Um, but I have found more spirituality and more Christian comfort from the men in Unit 2 on death row and their families that is, you know, it's an experience I'm having now with the Payne family, watching their, you know, Christian faith, holding them through, mm -hmm. but also watching Ed Zagorski forgive the men mm -hmm. who were about to execute him. I mean, I watched that mm -hmm. when they went up to the bars and he said, you know, they were about to go extract him. And so there's all these guys in their tack gear and they're all in front of the, of the bars at the death house. And he says, I just don't want y'all to feel bad about this. Yeah. You know, I'm, I know and you know you're just doing your job, and I just don't want you to feel bad. He just wanted everybody to laugh. He just, you know, he was like trying to make it better for everybody else. And yeah, and his last words were meant to be kind of a funny joke. Yeah, they, they weren't meant to be Yeah, sarcastic. when they got put out in the press, I think people took it the wrong way. But knowing Ed, I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> when, when I heard, I was on my way home. Right. Listening to the report on the, right, the press conference. And, uh, and <laughs> when they said... Ed's last words were this. I mean, I, I chuckled because I knew Ed and I knew what he was trying to do. He, he was just trying to be funny. Now, I think other people took it, you know, you don't know Ed, so it came across yeah. the wrong way. But it was like, it was like, that's, and then when I told the guys what he said, they were all like, yeah, that's Ed. That's, that, that's. It was the Simpsons thing. 
You yeah. Know? I mean, he loved the Simpsons. Yeah. And, and of course, back, you know, back to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is their brother. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. Jesus was executed by the state. So, you know, he, <laughs> he, he knows what's going on. And I think there's, there is that affinity that this has happened. And then especially if you have someone like Purvis, if we can pivot a little bit, who's innocent. Um, and now, you know, not knowing what's going to happen and it's, you know, it's less than two months away now. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that's what gets those guys through is, is that, um, is their faith and that spiritual connection and, and, um, you know, for us having Pastor KB there, especially now, I mean, we had no idea when we ordained Kevin that there was going to come a day when no one could go inside the prison. But the guys on death row have a pastor there who, who really spends, you know, those last moments before they're taken away, and he can pray with them, and he knows he knows how they feel, he knows what they're going through. I mean, it's really a, a from from our perspective, a um, a, a miracle in, in a way that 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 relationship with KB developed, and now he is the he he's there with those guys facing the same thing. But you know, they're having Bible studies, they're having. A church when they can. They've been on lockdown a lot lately, but, but you know, so. I mean, you can't look at, at um, KB's face and not see the Lord. You know, <laughs> it's just that smile, and he just beams. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, the, the fact that, you know, at the, at the argument, you know, the prayer that he'd written, and, and Richard had it at the podium, and, mm-hmm. you know, like that was a source of strength. I mean, that, that sort of thing is, is really powerful, and I, I believe in it, and, um, I once had, I had a client who I had to call in Arizona. I was in Arizona for three years and um, I was calling them to tell them that we'd lost and um, that they were going to come to execute him. And he put down the phone, but he didn't hang it up. And so I heard him say to his spiritual advisor who was there, um, the Lord is answered and the answer is no. And then somebody picked up the phone and hung it up. So I, I sort of figure, um, you know, as long as I as long as I know I'm doing everything I can for my guys, and I'm fighting and I'm getting the word out, I'm doing things like this. I'm I'm on social media. I'm I'm just bearing witness. Then I'll live with this. You know, with whatever happens. But, yeah. Um. But 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 Purvis, I mean, he is. I I, I like I've known Purvis for twenty years because he's the he's the rock man. He's the guy who's out there cleaning mm-hmm. up. You know, whenever you go out there. And he's always had a kind word to say, but I've only been his lawyer for about a year. And there was a changeover in counsel. His lawyers left the office. And, and so I, I got on the case. And, you know, I put a whole team on it of, you know, there are um, two other lawyers in the office that you know, I asked to start working on the case, but they were real young. Um, and I just got into it. But the, the part of our problem was, as you all know, Last October, there was a request for seven execution dates, and I was counsel on all of them. So we did everything we could as fast as we could, and then there was a date for Oscar Smith, and there was a date for Byron Black. And, you know, Purvis was just always patiently waiting his turn, you know. And then I get into it, and I look at the case, and like I said, I used to be a trial lawyer. And I look at him and go, he, he didn't do this. You know, there's just no way he did this. Now, I love all my guys. You know, I, I love them and I want to save them and I'll make whatever legal arguments are available to me for them. A lot of guys are just like, you know, I get the death penalty off of me. Some guys are like, no, get, you know, get this conviction off of me. I work for them, so I'm, I'll do whatever it is I need to do for them. Um, but Purvis has been saying he's innocent 
for 33 years. And when I look at it as a trial lawyer looking at the case, I'm like, I believe him. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't do this. And, and the other thing you have to know when, when I get the case, we reinvestigate it. Like, that's just my approach. I look at the police reports and I say, if I was a trial lawyer, how would I do this? And if he's innocent, who's lying? Like, and, I, and I give my client the benefit of the doubt instead of giving the government the yeah. benefit of the doubt. And a lot of times, I, you know, my, 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 no, my guy did something this horrific, and it's a horrific crime. Um, if they're guilty, I'm going to look into their past, and I'm going to see childhood abuse. I'm going to see mental illness. I'm gonna, and I'm going to see it you know, three generations back in the family. And that's not what you see in this family. You see a loving family. You see descendants of slaves in Tipton County mm-hmm. who you know, brought themselves up by their own bootstraps. His dad was a hard, hard worker, had his own small business, and was a Kojic minister. Um, he's now a superintendent in the Kojic uh, That's Church. Church of God in Christ, Kojic. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah. I've learned, I didn't know anything about Church of God in Christ <laughs> I was going to roll with it, but thank you for <laughs> yeah, Church of God in Christ. Yeah. And they're headquartered in Memphis. Exactly. And, you know, that deep faith that they instilled in Purvis has, has definitely stayed with him and got him through this experience, but also his family, like his, you know, cause you visited his dad, even though he has Parkinson's disease and is 78 years old, um, made the drive until visit stopped every week to see his son, you know? And yeah, that's a long drive to drive up there mm-hmm. and back. Um, his sister, Rolanda, who um, lives here in middle Tennessee is just one of the most amazing human beings you ever want to meet. And you know, her dedication to Purvis is unwavering. This, this is a good family. This is a family who taught him right from wrong. Um, and you, you don't just one day do this yeah. and, and not do something before and not do anything after. Yeah, well, let's take a break. I, mean, I want to hear about the case, his case. What is it that's, that's missing? Where was the mistake made? But, but uh, you know, I, I got to say this. I mean, I love all the guys that are out there. And to me, regardless if they're innocent or guilty, they still should not be put to death. I mean, that's just, to me, it goes against what Jesus teaches. But when they're innocent, that's even more so. And then I feel myself drawn to Purvis and, and of course, KB because they were preacher's kids. You know, you know, so it's like, well, that could have been me. My dad is a minister. It could have been my son. So there's that, that connection when I hear that, man, that, you know, they were brought up in the church and their dad was a pastor. There's like, whoa, that, that really pulls. It's like, I just feel drawn to that. But let's take a break and when we get back, we'll hear more about Purvis's case and where that is and, and, uh, and so forth. All right, we'll be right back. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at 2nd and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of 2nd and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. Welcome back. We have been talking about the death penalty with Kelly Henry um, and kind of her experience as a public defender and working specifically on the Purvis Spain case. And we were about to get into some of the details of what actually happened. Um, Kelly, can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So um, Purvis was 20 years old at the time. It, uh, the homicide occurred June 27th, 1987. He's a year younger than me. So um, 
I, I was getting ready to be a senior in college the year that this happened. And, you know, he Purvis, one thing you have to know um, that's important to know is that he's intellectually disabled. You know, he was born premature. He had to stay in the hospital. He was only four pounds. Um, but his family, you know, he, he took care of him, right? He was raised in the church. The church took care of him. People knew he was slow, but that's okay, you know? Um, but that's also just important to know just in terms of, of some of his decision-making um, that day. But it was just a summer day. He was just doing what kids do on a summer day. And he was, I mean, he's a kid, 20's a kid. I got a 20-year-old. I got a 21-year-old and a 20-year-old. <laughs> yeah. They're kids. They're kids. Um, you know, and, yeah, I mean, he, he was drinking a beer. Maybe he shouldn't have been drinking a beer. But, you know, um, just riding around with his cousin, waiting for his girlfriend to get home. She'd been out of town for the week, and they were going to spend the weekend together. So, um, you know, this is back in the days before cell phones. So you couldn't just call and say, hey, are you home? You know, he went to knock on the door. She wasn't home yet. But he heard um, a noise from the apartment next door. And this is a, a small landing. I mean, maybe just a little bit wider than this table. I mean, so easy to hear. And he walked in and saw just this horrific scene of um, you know, Cherise Christopher and her daughter Lacey um, lying there in a pool of blood, son Nicholas also in a pool of blood. And Miss Christopher was still alive, and as it turns out, so was Nicholas at the time. Nicholas was ultimately saved. Um, but she had a knife sticking out of her neck. And Purvis did what he was raised to do, is he tried to help. And the only thing he could think to do is remove the knife from her neck. I mean, he's panicked. He's in this overwhelming state of trauma, you know, seeing all this, what do I do, what do I do? And then it hits him, they're going to think I did this. There's nobody else here. I'm black. You know, this is typical. What was the victim white? She was white. Okay. Yes, the victim was white, um, and her children were both white. So, you know, and, and this was Millington, Tennessee, right? So it's on the border of Shelby County and Tipton County. And Shelby County, you know, as we know, has the, you know, historically has the most lynchings of any county in the state of Tennessee. And that, you know, that legacy of racism lives on, frankly, to this day. So he ran. Um, now, his testimony will later be that he had seen somebody running out of the apartment building before him. Um, there's another eyewitness who saw that person as well, but he, that was, witness wasn't discovered until much later. Um, but he ran because he's a kid. And he was scared. And he was right. They just zeroed in on him and didn't, you know, anything that was inconsistent with him being guilty, they just looked over. Now, there are some serious questions about the integrity of the investigation here. So the Millington Police Department is a small little police department. Normally, for a homicide this serious, you would expect them to call in the TBI, um, a you know, local strike force, maybe ask Memphis for some help. Instead, they just kept it in-house. And, you know, there's evidence that the, you know, portions of the crime scene were moved. Um, the color camera that they had to take pictures, oops, we forgot to put the film in, which doesn't make sense. Um, you know, the, I mean, one of the things that really just I keep sticking on, because, again, maybe because I'm a mother, is his mom went to the police station that night and said, if you think he did it, take a drug test, right? And they didn't take the drug you know, they refused her. And one, if I had gone as a white woman, they would have done what I asked them to do. Yeah. 
But because she was a black woman, they just marginalized her. They, they cast her aside. And the most important evidence of, of his innocence was lost forever that night. Mm-hmm. Because by the time it got to trial, two weeks before trial, they come up with this supposed evidence of a piece of paper that they said was in Permis's pocket testing positive for cocaine. So it just became this, he was a drug-crazed mm-hmm. you know, man, you know, sexual predator. That was what they made him out to be. Um, just based on all these you know, horrific stereotypes. The piece of paper that they tested was missing by the time of trial. We don't have a photograph of it. How do you lose that piece of paper in two weeks? Hmm. So now you can't get an independent evaluation on it, right? Um, it just all this sort of stuff. And the, the guy who prosecuted Purvis, um, an attorney named Tom Henderson, has been found by a judge who was a former DA, to have intentionally withheld evidence in the Michael Rimmer case mm-hmm. um, got, caused the case to be reversed. But, I mean, that wasn't his first time. So there are all sorts of questions about this so-called overwhelming evidence that the DA talks about in, in Purvis's case. Um, but I just looked at it, and I'm like, I, you know, I just don't think he did it. So what can we do here? Well, let's get the Innocence Project involved. And, you know, they took the case. I, I knew Barry Sheck and Vanessa Potkin, who are my co-counsel from the Sedley Alley case. That's the only other you know, case I've tried to get DNA in. And they came in on that case. And I said, hey guys, this is, I mean, and that was a, Sedley Alley was a Millington, Tennessee case that happened mm-hmm. the year before, the murder happened the year before Purvis's case. So, I mean, it's like, it's Millington. Purvis tried to get DNA back in the same time that Sedley did. And he was denied for the same reason Sedley was denied, but the laws changed. Y'all come in, let's do this. And you know, we met pushback from the DA. She said, no, we don't want DNA testing. Why don't you want DNA testing? If you think he did it, it's just going to prove your case. Yeah, exactly. um, and so we asked for a bunch of evidence. And one of the things that you have to do when you ask for DNA is you have to prove that the evidence still exists. And so we, get, we had a list of all these items of things we wanted tested. And the state came back and said, all of them were in existence except vaginal swabs. Those were gone. And they had said that before, back in 2005, that the vaginal swabs were gone. Again. So they lost... They lost. <laughs> they, yeah, no, there's no paper trail, no chain of custody. They're gone. Victims they were taken. Yeah. The vaginal swabs were taken, but oh. then they disappeared. Yeah. So. Yeah. There was, there was some testimony about it at trial um, trying to insinuate that there had been a rape. And they used those vaginal swabs, which, again, I mean, I don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but there were real questions about that testimony. Yeah. But we could have done DNA. They're gone. The victim's clothing, gone. No paper trail. But they said on July 30th of 2020, the Shelby County DA in court, in a paper, said that the fingernail scrapings exist. Well, I mean, this woman fought. She fought. And so you know she would have had perpetrator DNA under her fingernails. And then when we get to court on September 1st, they're missing. Are you talking about now recently? So yeah. just, just when they just recently said, let's do the DNA testing, they said the fingernail evidence was there, and then September 1, they don't exist anymore. Right. No paper trail. This is not 1987. This is 2020. This is 2020. In a, in a span of six weeks' time, they did exist, they didn't exist. Well, that was just a typographical error. I shouldn't have said that they existed. Like, that's a court order to file a response, and you're saying you didn't check? It's, there, there's just so many questions about that. And that was, that was the most valuable piece of evidence to test. But we have other evidence that, that is being tested, um, including eyeglasses, which 
were not visible from the photographs that were provided to the defense in the case, but when all this stuff happened, I, the DA finally let us look at his file, and he has way better photographs than we had, and there were a pair of glasses, folded glasses, at the head of the victim at the scene, like they'd fallen out of somebody's pocket. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we got the evidence on September 16th. Um, Judge Skane sided with us, and we, we, got, we took the evidence that day, packaged it up, took it to FedEx, and it is is with our experts now. And But, you know, it takes some time to get the results back. We lost two months by having to fight about whether or not we could get it. So we'll get the results about November 15th. Wow. So less than a month. Yeah. And no one, they never even looked at anybody else but Purvis. No, they didn't. And, you know, Purvis didn't have a motive. Yeah. Like, was there a boyfriend? Was there a husband? Was there... There's um, a violent ex-husband who she had divorced because he was abusing her. Um, and that, that ex-husband's family is very interesting because his brother... Um, was convicted and sent to death row in Florida for a sexually motivated murder. His other brother was so violent towards their mother that their mother shot him. This ex-husband is now dead because he was shot and killed by somebody who was able to claim self-defense. You know, he had a history of, of alcohol problems. Do they have his DNA somewhere? Um, we should be able to get his DNA from some item. We don't know if he's in the CODIS database or not. Um, but you know, the, there should be, hopefully, maybe some way to recreate a, a profile based on the fact yeah. that we have the son's uh, and the daughter's DNA. Um, yeah, he had a quote-unquote alibi in that he was in the Fort Pillow farm, um, which is just up the road, just up, straight up 51 from this crime scene. And what we know, because we went to the archives, is that Fort Pillow got cited for the fact that they didn't have count in the middle of the day in a security um, evaluation. And it was just sort of known that if you were at the farm, that it wasn't locked. And people could just drive up, you could go joyriding, do whatever you wanted to do. As long as you were back for nighttime count, nobody much cared. Plus they had 280 some people working out in the, in the community. But because they didn't do an investigation about the conditions of his incarceration, I can't find, you know, there's no existence of, you know, was he on a work crew? Did they do a count that day? Who were his neighbors? I mean, that, that evidence is, is gone to us because that was never looked at. There was, she had a boyfriend um, at the time, which again, gave violent ex-husband a motive. And there was also, there's testimony that she had a drug problem and that there were maybe some people in the community who um, wished her harm because of, of her involvement in the drug trade in Millington. Plenty of other options. Yeah. And nothing yeah. points to purpose. Nothing. Nothing. He had no motive, no reason to do this. Because, like, because he tried to help. He had blood. He had the victim's yeah. blood on his clothes, right? right. And mm -hmm. so that was kind of, they found that out, and then it was just tunnel, vi tunnel vision. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, no connection to the victim whatsoever. So, and, so their and so their argument was that he was high, sexual predator, and just a random victim, right? Because there was no connection right. um, between that. Right. Um, but that just doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense, you, but particularly with the children. Yeah. You know, it just, it, their theory never did hang together and yeah. still doesn't hang together. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll claim um, that the little girl had Purvis's um, baseball cap in, around her arm. But when you look at the photographs, 
it's not there. That's not where it is. I mean, his, the, the, um, the hat is there. There's no doubt he left his hat at the scene. But the little girl's arm was not inside the hat the way they claimed. So there's just all these inconsistencies that, that don't make any sense. And so we've gone to um, Governor Lee, and we have filed a request for clemency. And our request, I've never filed a, I mean, I filed clemency requests before, but this is the first time we had over 150 supporters, you know, supporting our request for clemency, including... I signed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, faith organizations, civic organizations, broad-based. I mean, all sorts of liberal, conservative, Christian, Jewish, Muslim... Lawyers, the, the entire Memphis Bar Association is supporting our request for clemency. Um, and, you know, one of the things we're saying is there are just too many questions. But what there's no question about is he is intellectually disabled. There's just no question about it. And the state doesn't even deny it. And the fact of the matter is the U.S. Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional to execute people who are intellectually disabled. So he shouldn't even be on death row. And the, the basis for that decision is that people with intellectual disability are at a special risk for wrongful execution. And all of those reasons are apparent in this case. So the answer could be really easy for the governor. You know, the, the courts are closed to Purvis on this issue because of procedural technicalities. Right. You know, the Tennessee Supreme Court has said, if he's intellectually disabled, we have no interest in his execution, but the courts just don't have an avenue for him. So the governor is the avenue. The governor has to step in because the courts have failed. But we also have the the Tennessee Black Caucus of State Legislators who has said, you know, once this was brought to their attention, they will introduce that bill to fix, you know, to patch the hole, um, as they said. So the governor could choose to reprieve Mm -hmm. Purvis, not do anything else other than just grant a reprieve to allow that, that legislation to move forward to give us a chance to get into court. Um, so a, a couple of different options. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we said to the governor in our application was, you know, we've done everything that we can given the, you know, resources that we have to work with and the fact that COVID happened in March. And, yeah. you know, there are things that I would do, witnesses that I would go see. Um, you know, I, what we've been able to do has been very limited. We can go to court, but... We can't go out into the community and, you know, risk exposing some witness to COVID or exposing Mm -hmm. our, you know, my staff to COVID and they take it back to their family members. We have a lot of people in my um, my office who have pre-existing conditions. So, you know, the the other ask is if you don't feel like we have given you sufficient information at this juncture to grant a reprieve because of COVID. So there are three alternative asks that are in front of Governor Lee right now. Yeah, and so, I, you know, we'll, if you can remind me, in the show, mo- in the show notes, we'll put um, the governor's address so people can write letters uh, saying, at the very least, slow this down. There's, there's, there's evidence that points in another direction. Let's see this through. You know, you, you don't want to execute um, the wrong person. You don't want to execute anybody, but especially, you know, the, the wrong person. So we can get that so you can put put that in there. But what baffles me all the time is, is with the governor is that, you know, um, he will say, and he has said, well, you know, it's not my place to intervene and change what the courts have already decided. That this kind of that typical mm-hmm. response because one phone call and 
you know, he could make one phone call and clemency would be given or the execution would stop, right? right. But he doesn't want to interfere with settled with what the courts have decided. And, I, and I've told people, but if he could make one phone call and stop abortions, he'd make that phone call regardless of what the courts have decided. You know, so just one phone call and um, it would, you know, it, it would stop. It's just, but instead it's just a washing the hands and say, well, the courts have already decided this. I can't, uh, I can't intervene. And Purvis is one of the guys that signed the letter, you know, that um, there was the, uh, the guys on death row wrote a letter to the governor asking him to come pray with them. And Purvis's signature is on there, as well as I think three now, the guys that were executed, their names were on there, uh, just to get the governor to come and pray. And um, and he hasn't done that. And I've talked to the governor about that, and I've talked to people who know the governor really well about, look, this is not, I promise you, there's not going to be an agenda. No, no one's going to ask uh, for clemency at that meeting. We can talk about that later. They literally just want you to come pray with them, and they want to pray for you. That's all. That's you know, there is no other agenda behind that. Um, so anyway, so we'll put that in the show notes so you can get a hold of the governor and say, hey, please, I, I promise you he's aware of this. I, I promise you he's aware of it. He knows what's going on in this case. And uh, he just needs that extra shove to make, uh, to make the right decision. Well, you know, and, and what's different about Purvis's case, and of course I, I believed in, in all the clemency cases that have been in front of him, I, I felt very strongly that Don Johnson... Um, had a very strong clemency case. But what's different here is that this is the situations where the court failed. This is exactly why clemency exists yeah. as the fail-safe. You know, it's, people laugh at me because I sound like such a dork so many times, but I really love the Constitution. You know, I mean, I love the Constitution and the promise of the Constitution and this whole idea of checks and balances so, you know, no particular part of the, of the government can be more powerful than the other. And the governor can be a check here because, you know, the Constitution says that Purvis's execution would be illegal, no matter what you think about right. his guilt or innocence. It would be illegal to execute him under the, under the law. So the governor can step in and say, this is exactly why. The, the legislature didn't fix it when the, uh, the court told them they needed to. The court has said, you know, we just can't fix it. There's no, dis you know, there's no doubt. Yeah. Governor Act, you know, this is the opportunity. And yes, we want people to, to write, email um, the governor. We want people to talk about it. We want people to put this out on social media. Yeah, please share, please share this. Share all of our, all of our episodes, but share this one. Yeah. <laughs> please share it over and over again. And I think it would be appropriate also, I, I, I don't know who, who um, I mean, I know some of the people in the Black Caucus, but who exactly get a hold of, but a, a letter to them that they will introduce this bill. Uh, that will give uh, what the Supreme Court, the, the Tennessee Court, a chance to correct wrongs like this. Right. So they have said that they will propose an yeah. amendment that would allow Purvis to present his claim in court. Okay. And you know, pretty simple. It's not a floodgate. It's not yeah. going to cost a bunch of money. Um, and we'll prevail. I mean, I hired the expert that the state that the Shelby County DA used in the Robert Coe case. Okay. Okay. And and the guy who the Commonwealth of Virginia relied on in the Daryl Atkins case when Daryl Atkins went back for a hearing after the Supreme Court. So I didn't just go hire some defense-friendly guy. I hired somebody that they put trust and faith in, and he has said Purvis is unquestionably intellectually disabled. He meets all the criteria. The problem is, you know, people don't understand what intellectual disability mm -hmm. is. You know? um, and so that, again, gets, it gets misperceived, but, you know, Purvis meets all the criteria. 
it doesn't mean that you're, you can't be loving. It doesn't mean that you can't have a deep faith. It doesn't right. mean that you can't have a family, you know? Um, the weird thing about prison is, is that it's strangely supportive for people with intellectual disabilities because your life is very, very structured. Mm-hmm. So and, you, just, and you become a family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, despite the intellectual disability case, weren't there enough mistakes made back in 1980, whenever, and all along the way back in, you know, just a few months ago that, that it could be said there is, there was just so many mistakes made. You can't, you can't even count this conviction on top of the fact that he should have never been convicted in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the courts again are not set up to deal with everything that we're bringing out now yeah. and everything that we're learning now. I mean, there's enough there. It seems to me there's enough there, Governor Lee, that <laughs> if you don't want to second guess what the courts are saying, you absolutely should second guess what the courts said because there were so many mistakes made from evidence gathering and evidence protecting over the years of what, you know, whatever the Latin terms are for <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm, I'm the lay person here in this, but it, it just seems like Governor Lee, it's the perfect opportunity for you to step in and go, no, 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 this is, this is your responsibility, your right, and your privilege to rescue somebody's life that has inappropriately and yeah, no, no, um, no criminal record before this. Yeah. Um, model prisoner, never been in trouble as far as I know, never, never Tennessee's death row has a level system and, and, um, you know, everybody, when they go on to death row, they're at that high level, but then they can get off of it. And, uh, as far as I know, once Purvis got off of it, he's never been put back so no disciplinary, if he's Rockman, if you don't know, the Rockman is a guy who's kind of like a janitor, I guess. He, he's, he can get out of his cell a whole lot to clean up stuff, you know. Right. So it's a high privilege. I mean, they, yeah. they usually, that's the, that's the um, inmate who has shown himself to be the most dependable and the most trustworthy from the guard's perspectives as well as the inmate. So he can go into somebody's um, cell to help clean up, and the, and the inmates will trust that he's not going to take anything. And then, of course, the guards trust um, that. So for a person to have that position, uh, they have to really earn it. And uh, it comes with um, a great deal of integrity uh, kind of behind it. And that's, and that's, what, uh, that's what he is. Ed was the same way. Yeah. Um, and uh, so those are usually the most trustworthy guys in any pod is the guy who gets that title. Um, rock, rock man. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> you know, I honestly don't either. But. Yeah, but that's what, that's what it's called, and that's what he has been. Uh, and and he, he's in the cell right beside KB. So those, in our, those who listen, who hear me talk about KB, they're, they're really best friends. Yeah. And they're you know, right beside each other. They're, their families know each other, and, and it's just a big network that they, they help each other out. And so, um, yeah, that's just... <laughs> People would be so surprised when they went to Unit 2 to realize what a family it what is. What a family it is, yeah. It is the safest unit to work. Yeah, the, guard, the, the guards want to go to Unit 2 because to, <laughs> there's usually not any problems. They, they self-monitor um, each other um, because, of the, because of the level system. Because I think, it's like somebody at one time told me it's the only death row in the country that has that level system format. Um, and has the least problems. Yeah, it has the least problems because basically if you get put on death row, that's, that's your life. And so if you're level A, which is the lowest level, that's the most freedom you're ever going to have. And so you don't want to lose that. And so they self-monitor. Um, they, you know, they, they look out for each other. They have, yeah, it's just, it's just something, uh, it's, it really is something unique. Now, every one of them would still rather not be there, <laughs> yeah. but... Um, 
but anyway, that, that's where they that, that's that's where they are uh, from that. Um, well, just a word quickly. I mean, why in the world after what seventeen some odd years, the federal government decided to start just going through a list? I mean, just boom, 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 boom. Seven since July, and yeah. at least one more scheduled. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I. It's the political will of the current administration, you know, um, and, and part of it was the lethal injection litigation that, that finally came to an end. Also, the um, federal government got a supply of pentobarbital, yes. and so they knew that that wouldn't be controversial in terms of, of a method. So I don't know how they got their supply of pentobarbital, um, probably illegally. <laughs> yeah, because most pharmaceutical companies will, do not sell their drugs to... Um the prison system, and they know that's what it's going to be used for. Yeah, you, uh, no prison system, there, there is no pharmaceutical company that will allow pentobarbital to be sold yeah. for um, use in executions. So if, if they get it, they get it by misrepresenting what they're going to be using yeah. it for. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's just, you know, when I, for me, um, I can remember specifically reading a newspaper article years ago um, that basically outlined that in the next two years there were 13 executions scheduled. And that's where I felt um, God, through his spirit, say, you need to go to death row. I didn't even know where death row was. Didn't know anybody. Didn't know anything. Um, but, those thir- but about half of those 13 names have been executed now by this point. But that's it's like somebody has got to say, some, or somebody has just got to get there and try to, I don't know, be, be an element of grace or something to the guys, uh, as well as to speak out about it. And, uh, and of course, it immediately went... Um, because of the drug protocol got stopped, but then slowly, you know, what is it, about seven or eight, I think, um, since uh, this new round of executions? Seven. And, and most of those guys were on the 13. Not, not all of them were on that original 13 yeah. list, but, but uh, uh, most of them were. And um, so anyway, just... What would it take in the state of Tennessee? Is, like, is that the starting point, is, is you could do it, just in the state of Tennessee, and then, you know, we could have a federal. But, but what would... The stop the death penalty? Yeah, yeah it's a constitutional it. change, but you can... Well, I mean, the legislature, it's a, it's a statute. So the legislature can, you know, overturn the statute. Okay, so it's not necessarily a constitutional change. Okay. No, it's, it's, up, to, it's up to the legislature, and it's people letting their legislators know. Again, to get back to the funding aspect of it, right? We spend so much money on these cases that really pays for the political will of a very few district attorneys in this state because most counties in this state don't have anybody on death row. It, you're, you're talking Shelby, Knox. Davidson hasn't put anybody on death row, you know, in over a decade. And as the lawyers have gotten better, death sentences have gone down. The only two sentences have come out of West Tennessee, and most of those are black. So, I mean, there's something seriously wrong with the system that's wasting this much money that could go to, you know, the root causes of crime. Yeah, it's, what it is somewhere, it's over a million dollars for, to carry out the death sentence. I mean, that includes all the litigation that has to take place and a little over 20 years, right, from execution, from sentencing to, uh, to execution. And so you could put somebody in prison for the rest of their life and give them three meals a day and come out a whole lot cheaper than that or take the excess. One of the arguments I heard from somebody was, okay, if you're spending one and a half million dollars um, 
for this, put the person just in, in jail for the rest of their life or, or whatever, and take some of that money to help not just the root causes of crime, but also to help the, the victim's family. If that victim had a child, well, here's, you know, here's a scholarship fund, here's, here's funding for counseling. And instead of spending that million dollars in this ridiculous system, you could take that same amount of money and, and do some good with it and, uh, and do some good that would help, you know, that would help the family that, that has suffered the loss. So there's just so, and then plus, and we talked about this, the whole idea of reconciliation um, instead of, um, you know, uh, retribution, you know, is, is what we're supposed to be about. I mean, I'm a huge fan of this, pro, this um, thing called defense-based victim outreach. Um, I don't want to be a source of pain for the victim's family members. I really don't, you know. And, and the system sets us up almost like I'm their adversary. And, and that's just not true. Um, and and that, the approach of defense-based victim outreach is really about helping victims get answers that the prosecution usually can't get them. Yeah. Um, to bring them some sense of closure and peace you know, which, which can be done. Um, so, you know, I've, I, I pray for the family of Sharice Christopher and, and Lacey Christopher, and I pray for Nicholas Christopher. Um, but justice doesn't come through the execution of an innocent man. And for somebody who would say, well, part of the reason it costs so much is because things go on this long, I will just point you to purpose pain and say, mm-hmm. you know, until a few months ago, nobody was really paying attention to the fact that there was an innocent man on death row, yeah. that they, they were walking around you know, in my case, for 20 years. Yeah, and what is it? Somewhere around the 3%, maybe as much as 5 somewhere between that 3 to 5% of people on death row are innocent of the charges that put them there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, so you, we, have, we have executed innocent people. There's no, uh, there's no question about that. And uh, that should weigh heavy on, on our hearts. And the, the principle of Scripture is that it's better to let the guilty go free than to condemn the innocent. And it's, that's the Mosaic law in a nutshell. Um, that that's it's always better to let the guilty go free than to condemn the innocent. And um, but anyway, that's we're we're off subject. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you, thank you for coming. The um, look up look up Purvis Payne in the Innocent Project. Is it .dot com or .dot org? Do you it's know? A, it, if you go to PurvisPayne.org, org, that's our website, and it's it's embedded in the Innocence Project's right. website. But you can sign up there, um, get all the updates. You know, add your name to our petition. And write Governor Lee, email Governor Lee, call Governor Lee. Yeah. Make your voice heard. He's your representative. And it's P-E-R-V-I-S and then P-A-Y-N-E. Yes. Is, is how you spell his name. So purposepain.org, and you can read all about this. Thank you so much again for coming out uh, to Franklin. Hopefully it was a nice break in your day. Exactly. Thank you all so much. Sure. Thanks, Kelly. Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin. Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler podcast network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler.